down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? Is more in one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look at Yuval Noah Harari. Who is this guy? And what exactly are his beliefs? What is it that he stands for? What is he all about? Many of the statements this guy has made actually sound like uh, maybe he's trying to sound the warning bells here and perhaps he really has some concerns about the things he sees coming and that perhaps he's just trying to warn the people and that perhaps he may be on our side so to say and i'm here to tell you tonight ladies and gentlemen and nothing could be further from the truth this guy is lock stock and barrel a transhumanist to the core and represents all of the heinous philosophies that go right along with the dynamic of the power structure operating in lockstep with the World Economic Forum. And we will prove it tonight by going through an article of his own writing, an article he wrote in a magazine called The New Statesman on September 9th, 2016. So this article is from approximately eight years ago, a little less than eight years ago. He lays out some of his core beliefs and his core values in this article and we'll read it to you in his own words and he could tell you exactly who he is and what he believes for a little bit of more background about this guy he holds a phd in history from oxford university among some other various ivy league schools he follows the transhumanist philosophy to the t this is what he believes he's written books about it He's certainly an intelligent guy. He's definitely on board with Uncle Klaus and all of the the yahoos over there at the World Economic Forum with this whole idea, with the rollout of the 4IR, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So make no mistake about it, this guy, he's not our friend, okay? And maybe he's out there saying some things uh, to make it sound as if, oh, well, we're trying to warn you, but that's always the game that these people play. They, they like to go out there and they very much enjoy telling us what's coming next and telling us, you know, we, we should do something about it. We need to beware of this or that. And then they go ahead and they institute these ideas anyhow. You've probably seen or heard of this guy saying that the time for free will is gone, that there's no such thing anymore, that they could manipulate your behavior through the use of these different technologies, that you don't have free will anymore, your soul does not exist anymore, that they can manipulate you in any way they see fit with these technologies they have. This could lead to a totalitarian dictatorship of sorts, a world dictatorship, technocratic agenda. 
what we could see is this gentleman, he attended Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He completed his uh, doctorate in philosophy degree at Jesus College and Oxford in 2002 under the supervision of Stephen J. Gunn. He holds a Yad Hanadiv Fellowship. It says at Oxford, he encountered the writings of Jared Diamond, who he has acknowledged as an influence on his own writing. At a Bergruen Institute salon, Harari said that Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel was kind of an epiphany in his academic career, and he realized he could actually write such books. So that being the case, he started out his literary career then and began writing several books, some of which are uh, directly relating to transhumanism. In fact, one of his best-selling books and most well-known ones is called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And this was published originally in Hebrew in 2011. He's done some serious work looking at the transhumanist future and the goals thereof. So this guy is is bought into the whole philosophy uh, hook, line, and sinker. And he's, like I said, he's an intelligent guy. He tells you some of the same stuff that I've been telling you for a while now, but he's telling it from his own perspective, okay, from another perspective. And make no mistake about it, he's telling you about these things because he is for these things, very much for these things. They always present it to you in a format where you might accept that this might be some kind of a good thing. He also had a follow-up book to that first book we just named, and this one's called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, and that one was published in 2016, around the same time that he produced this article for New Statesman magazine, and that should tell you everything you need to know. It's a political magazine called New Statesman. It's all about the New World Order, folks, and this was published on September 9th, 2016. Uh, let's count the ways there, shall we? September 9, 9th, 9, 2016. If you add 2016, all the single digits together of 2016, you come up with a third 9, 999, the inversion of 666. So this, even in, in and of itself, is kind of a calling card. That should give you some kind of a modicum of what the intention is here. What is the intent behind it all? But without further ado, let's get into the article so that Mr. Harari here can tell you what he's all about in his own words. Hold on tight, folks, because it'll be a wild ride here. Let's read. Salvation by Algorithm, God, Technology, and the New 21st Century Religions. With its world-changing inventiveness, technology has become the force religion once was, by Yuval Harari. More than a century after Nietzsche pronounced him dead, God seems to be making a comeback. But this is probably a mirage. Despite all the talk of Islamic fundamentalism and Christian revival, God is dead. It just takes a while to get rid of the body. And I'm going to pause there for a minute, folks. In that first paragraph alone, did you hear all of the things that he just said? This is the guy's belief systems. This is what he is fundamentally all about. Once again, we see the repeating, the repetition of the trope that comes from Nietzsche, where he claims God is dead. Okay, where he said God is dead. And this is a whole big social engineering type of a thread. If you understand or have been following my work, you'll understand the importance of this whole thread, the God is dead thread, and how it relates to the pan archetype. 
and how it's being played on right now. And this guy pre-announced it here in 2016 in this article and its direct correlation to transhumanism here in the article. So here it is. And this guy was quoting Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said in 1882, God is dead. And he made the argument that God is dead in his work, The Gay Science. Mr. Harari says the same thing. He says God is dead. It's just taking a long time to get rid of the body. And that's kind of a hubristic attitude in and of itself as well, isn't it? This guy is wholeheartedly of the secular humanist variety, but he, he go, it goes way beyond secular humanism. This is the transhumanist philosophy, okay? This is the next step in for a lot of these people. They're, they're bought into the, the concept that they could become God, and they see that as being possible, and that's kind of the, the attitude he's displaying here, even in the very first paragraph of this article. Let's read on. Nowadays, the most interesting place in the world from a religious perspective is not Syria or the Bible Belt, but Silicon Valley. That is where high-tech gurus are brewing for us amazing new religions that have little to do with God and everything to do with technology. The, they promise all the old prizes, happiness, peace, justice, and eternal life in paradise. But here on earth, with the help of technology, rather than after death, and with the help of supernatural beings. And it says in parentheses here, Of course this does not mean the, that these techno-religions will fulfill all their extravagant promises. Religions spread themselves more by making promises than by keeping them. I'm going to pause after that paragraph here now, too, folks. Uh, see, he's, he's naming the new god, the new mythology of this place. It's science. The science! That's the new god. That's the new religion. That's what this is all about. That's the new myth, the modern myth. Let's read on and see what else he has to say. Godless religions are nothing new. Thousands of years ago, Buddhism put its trust in the natural laws of karma and Patakama Supada, which is dependent origination, it says in parentheses, rather than almighty deities. In recent centuries, creeds such as communism and Nazism have also upheld a system of norms and values based on allegedly natural laws rather than on the commandments of some supernatural being. These modern creeds prefer to call themselves ideologies rather than religions, but seen from a long-term perspective, they play a role analogous to that of traditional faiths such as Christianity and Hinduism. Both Christianity and communism were created by human beings rather than by gods and are defined by their social functions rather than by the existence of deities. In essence, religion is anything that legitimizes human norms and values by arguing that they reflect some superhuman order. The assertion... That religion is a tool for organizing human societies may vex those for whom it represents first and foremost a spiritual path. However, religion and spirituality are very different things. Religion is a deal, whereas spirituality is a journey. Religion gives a complete description of the world and offers us a well-defined contract with predetermined goals. God exists. 
He told us to behave in certain ways. If you obey God, you'll be admitted to heaven. If you disobey him, you will burn in hell. The very clarity of this deal allows society to define common norms and values that regulate human behavior. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Are you getting a feel for uh, what this guy's philosophies and uh, ideologies are? Do you sense the the spirit of what he's representing here? Do, do you sense what, what this is? Could you feel it in your bones that something... This guy saying does not sit well with the human soul. I think we all need to do a lot of contemplating about our own personal spiritual journeys and reflect upon our own lives and situations and on our own relationship with our creator, with God. This guy is kind of disregarding spirituality and or religion as something foolish in his eyes by the looks of it. So let's read on and see what else he has to say. He's equating it basically to being a control system, and he's not completely wrong there. So when he's talking about religion as a control system to influence human behavior, he's not 100% incorrect on that front. But at the same token, you could hear the intention in his words here. Spiritual journeys are nothing like that. They usually take people in mysterious ways towards unknown destinations. The search often begins with some big questions such as, Who am I? What is the meaning of life? What is good? Whereas most people accept the ready-made answers provided by the powers that be, spiritual seekers are not so easily satisfied. They are determined to follow the big question wherever it leads, and not just to places they know well or wish to visit. Often enough, one of the most important obligations for spiritual wanderers is to challenge the beliefs and conventions of dominant religions. In Zen Buddhism, it is said, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Which means that if, while walking on the spiritual path, you encounter the rigid ideas and fixed laws of institutional Buddhism, you must free yourself from them too. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Uh, so essentially, he's, he's touting a type of humanism here okay he's saying anything that holds you back should be discarded and he believes that religion as it were or spiritual paths are something that hold people back from progression that's a secular humanist view if ever i've heard one and even beyond that that's uh, what you would call a transhumanist viewpoint somebody who's trying to think in terms of their own affinity to become something divine or to become god themselves they don't espouse necessarily a belief in a god of any sort or of a supernatural creator of this this world that we live in but they think that humankind himself can become a god through the use of high technology, through the use of his intellect. And this is the Luciferian philosophy to the core. That's exactly what it teaches. That man, through his intellect, will become God. That's, that's the, the heart of the matter here. That's the core of the Luciferian philosophy. And that's what all of these people teach, whether they realize it or not. And that's what this guy is speaking on right here. That's essentially what he's pushing let's read on and see what else he has to say here from a historical perspective the spiritual journey is always tragic because it is a lonely path fit only for individuals rather than entire societies 
Human cooperation requires firm answers rather than just questions, and those who rage against stultified religious structures often end up forging new ones in their place. It happened to Martin Luther, who, after challenging the laws, institutions, and rituals of the Catholic Church, found himself writing new law books, founding new institutions, and inventing new ceremonies. It happened even to the Buddha and Jesus. In their uncompromising quest for the truth, they subverted the laws, rituals, and structures of conventional Hinduism and Judaism. But eventually, more laws, more rituals, and more structures were created in their names than in the name of any other person in history. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So he's casting aspersions here at both the Buddha and Jesus. He's claiming here that in their uncompromising quest for truth, they subverted the very laws and things that they allegedly represented here. And he also says that rituals and things like that and, and further laws and structures were created in their names. He's trying to paint religious ideologies in a negative light. That's exactly what he's doing. And he's, he's claiming to do this on the basis of quote-unquote, historical fact. Uh, this is the way a lot of these intellectuals operate. They try to make themselves sound more authoritative by stepping back and saying, well, when you view this through this lens, through the lens of history, you can see that, historically speaking, this is what they have done. And they, they're trying, he's trying here to present this in a negative light, uh, to say that, historically, religious ideologies and things like that have always invariably led to stricter laws, stricter behaviors. Let's read on. Because they are human creations that seek to cater to human fears and hopes, religions always dance a delicate tango with the technology of the day. Religion and technology push one another, depend on one another, and cannot stray too far from one another. Technology depends on religion because every invention has many potential applications, and the engineers need some priest or prophet to make the crucial choices and point towards the required destination. Thus, in the 19th century, engineers invented locomotives, radios, and the internal combustion engine. But as the 20th century proved, you can use these same tools to create fascist societies, communist dictatorships, or liberal democracies. Without religious or ideological convictions, the locomotives cannot decide which way to go. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So do you hear how he, what he's doing here? He's kind of equating the idea of religions and technology, religious ideas and technology. He's pairing them together in certain ways here. All right, he's saying technologies are tools. He's not incorrect with that. That can be used in certain ways. And some kind of quote-unquote priestcraft would be the ones that would have to direct the direction in which these technologies are used. And you could see some of the subtle innuendo being suggested here, can't you? He's claiming that you need a priest or a prophet to make crucial choices to point these technologies in the direction that they need to go. The bottom line here is he's, he's pointing to the fact that what, in, in their viewpoint, in the view of the transhumanists, they need a new type of priest or prophet to lead the way with these things and point these things in the proper direction. 
See, that's, that's kind of the inference he's giving here, that these old backward religions, well, they won't fill the bill anymore with this, because uh, the technologies that uh, came about when those were founded were nothing like these new technologies, right? And that religions were, were founded based upon their reaction to different types of technologies and scientific situations that mankind was in. And we'll see as we get a little further here how he argues these these points that he makes. He does so through the lens of a historian, in a sense, because that's what he has his PhD in, history, from Oxford University, nonetheless, which is one of the major Ivy League schools in this world that really pushes out the indoctrinated class, okay, the, the elitist class. Let's read on. On the other hand, technology often defines the scope and limits of our religious vision. Like a waiter who demarcates our appetites by handing us a, a menu. For instance, in ancient agricultural societies, many religions had surprisingly little interest in metaphysical questions and the afterlife. Really? I'm going to pause there. Really? You would know this because why? But Because you're a historian? So, you know, we have to take you at your word? Like, you know, you would know what went on in the lives of these people back then? Uh, this is not anything that's fact-based, folks. This is an opinion. But he claims it as if it's a fact, even though they were kind of agrarian or agricultural. That doesn't demarcate that they didn't care about spiritual things, about an afterlife or anything of the sort, or metaphysics. There were more metaphysicians when you go back in history than there are today, people interested in metaphysical sciences back then. So I don't know where this guy is pulling these facts from, but uh, they're not really facts. They're his opinions being interjected in here, and he's using his degree, his title as historian, to try to give these things, these ideas, authority when they really have none. Let's read on. Instead, they focused on the very mundane task of increasing agricultural output. The Old Testament God never promises any rewards or punishments after death. Rather, he tells the people of Israel, quote, And if you will diligently obey my commandments that I am commanding you, I will also give rain for your land at its appointed time, and you will gather your grain and your new wine and your oil, and I will provide vegetation in your fields for your livestock, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful not to let your heart be enticed to go astray and worship other gods and bow down to them. Otherwise, Jehovah's anger will blaze against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will not give its produce, and you will quickly perish from the good land that Jehovah is giving you, end quote. And he quotes that from Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 17, and he broke up some of the, the verse there into different parts and took it completely out of context. Okay? But he's using this, this, this is an old skill called rhetoric, folks. That's what he's doing here. He's using something here. He's taking a scripture from the Bible, quoting it out of context to back up the point he's trying to make, to make it look like he's an authoritative source on this, and that the Bible backs him up on this. Why would you do this? Why would you try to take something from the Bible here, quote it out of context to fit what you're pushing forward? It's, it's, see, he's twisting it to fit his agenda, to fit what he's trying to tell people. And like I said, this is an old skill, and this is a skill 
that's not really taught in, in much of our modern education system anymore. Unless, of course, you attend one of these elitist schools, if you're part of the, the big club, so to say, and you could go to these schools, they teach you this skill. It's called rhetoric. Rhetoric. So this is what he's using. He's using rhetoric here to try to back up his point, to make himself look more authoritative, and to make his statements here that are not factual, but are opinion-based, He's trying to make them look factual, and he's using different methods to do this. So now he's using the Bible to back up his idea, to try to give himself more credibility, even though he firmly and staunchly is against many of the things taught in the Bible. You, you could see this through the, the hubris here. He doesn't believe these things. He thinks it's foolishness, but he's willing to use it out of context to try to convince people that may believe a little something about it into taking his side of the argument here. Let's continue reading and see what else Mr. Yuval Harari has to say here. Scientists today can do much better than the Old Testament God. Thanks to artificial fertilizers, industrial insecticides, and genetically modified crops, agricultural production nowadays outstrips the highest expectations the ancient farmers had of their gods. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Do you hear the hubris in this statement? He's saying thanks to artificial fertilizers, industrial insecticides, and genetically modified crops, agricultural production today is far superior to what it was back then. So he's saying all these death-based technologies, these technologies that lead to death, genetically modified foods, insecticides, fertilizers, industrial fertilizers, artificial ones, all of the artificial things. See, this is all about going against the natural order with these people. Artificial fertilizer, industrial insecticide, genetically modified crops. It's, it's a spit in the eye to the creator. All of these things, and he's saying that this is superior to anything that the God of the Old Testament produced back in the day. So, let's read on here. And the parched state of Israel no longer fears that some angry deity will restrain the heavens and stop all rain. The Israelis have recently built a huge desalination plant on the shores of the Mediterranean, so they can now get all of their drinking water from the sea. Consequently, present-day Judaism has almost lost interest in rain and agricultural output and has become a very different religion from its biblical progenitor. And I'm going to pause there. So he's making presuppositions here once again that Judaism was based primarily on agricultural ideas, that it was concerned with agriculture, and it was based around agriculture. And although that was the culture of the day, that's how a lot of the different precepts of the religion were described because this was the culture. They understood farming. They understood agriculture. So a lot of the allegories and the stories they told related to things they were familiar with. Okay, this is what would be called parables. This is how Jesus taught back in the Bible. He taught in parables so people could understand things a little bit better because he taught it in a way in which they were familiar with, things that they were familiar with. Although there's a lot of agricultural ideas represented in these older cultures in their religious texts, that doesn't have to do with this religious system and we're praying to these gods for rain and all of this kind of stuff because of the agriculture. No, there, there was something more there. But this guy is just flossing it over, 
glossing it over, making it look like that was their only concern. And they, they made this into a god. Let's read on. The faithful may believe that their religion is eternal and unchanging, but in truth, even when they keep their names intact, religions such as Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism have no fixed essence. They have survived for centuries and millennia, not by clinging to some eternal values, but by repeatedly pouring heady new wine into very old skins. For all the heated debate about the supposed nature of Islam, whether it is in essence a religion of peace or a religion of war, the truth is that it is neither. Islam is whatever Muslims make of it, and over the centuries they have made of it remarkably different things. New technologies kill old gods and give birth to new gods. That is why agricultural deities were different from hunter-gatherer spirits, why factory hands and peasants fantasized about different paradises, and why the revolutionary technologies of the 21st century are far more likely to spawn unprecedented religious movements than to revive medieval creeds. Islamic fundamentalists may repeat the mantra that Islam is the answer, but religions that lose touch with the technological realities of the day forfeit their ability even to understand the questions being asked. What will happen to the job market once artificial intelligence outperforms people in most cognitive tasks? What will be the political impact of a vast new class of economically useless people? I'm going to pause there, folks. Are you beginning to hear the intention, the intent behind this guy's words? Do you hear what spirit underlies all of this? What this guy represents? What it is he's pushing and out there promoting? This doesn't sound like a guy that's on our side to me. It doesn't sound like he's pro-human to me. He's talking about useless people. Economically useless people. What a way to phrase things here. This, this is like, I, I, I can't even begin to fathom how to explain any deeper than I already have how inhumane or unhuman uh, this whole ideology is. Because it does not care about the spirit of man, about spiritual things. It's looking only at primarily material things here. You see how he steered, he steered the conversation about religion and spirituality to material things. He claims he equated it to the agricultural era. He, he related it to that, to being nothing more than about agriculture. And he drew comparisons between modern technologies and what the people were praying to their gods for back then, and claiming that the new technologies are far superior. So you could see the kind of intent behind this. You, you could see the spirit that underlies this whole thing. And this goes along with transhumanism in general. It's not the spirit of God behind it. It's not the next step in human evolution. It's not the way forward for mankind. It does not uplift the human spirit. It does the opposite. It's, it's the whole death ideology bound up in here. It's the antithesis. It's the antichrist spirit. That's what the spirit of transhumanism is. That's why it's always relating ideas like this. It dehumanizes people. It devalues people. 
And that's exactly the words coming out of this guy's mouth. He's saying new technologies, the artificial intelligence, it's going to create a class of economically useless people. Listen, I'm going to read on now. Listen to what else he has to say. What will happen to relationships, families, and pension funds when nanotechnology and regenerative medicine turn 80 into the new 50? What will happen to human society when biotechnology enables us to have designer babies and to open unprecedented gaps between rich and poor, and between the remaining productive class and the new useless class? Did you catch that? I'm going to pause again. The remaining productive class and the new useless class. It's going to open unprecedented gaps between the rich and poor. So this is going to create further division between the class structure. And we're seeing that unfolding before our eyes today, aren't we? We see this wealth disparity between uh, the wealthy individuals and the rest of the underclass. They're trying to create two classes. Make no doubt about it. They're trying to create a class of the rulers and the ruled. And there will be a vast discrepancy between the wealth and resources of those two classes. You will own nothing and you will be happy. See, do you understand where this goes? They'll be the productive class, or so they'll call themselves, and we'll be the new useless class. Do you see how they... And if you're a useless class, if you're a useless eater, as they they have been known to call you, you have very little value to them. So this this all ties hand in hand with eugenics and uh, the whole depopulation agenda and all that stuff as well. That goes hand in hand with transhumanism. It's inferred in the transhumanist movement. It's all based on eugenics. One pro-transhumanist channel out there that was on YouTube actually defined transhumanism as being, quote, eugenics without coercion, end quote. And that was a pro-transhumanist channel that, that's pushing and promoting these ideas. They call it, in their own words, eugenics without coercion. That's what they're lining up here, folks. So the useless class, are you going to be part of the useless class? So they call you? Well, if you value your humanity and don't want to step into this technocratic control grid, this artificial thing that will suck you dry and leave you an empty shell and take your soul from you, then you have no place in their future, their transhumanist new world order, their future, their new dawn. You see, it all ties back to occultism. You will have no place in their new age if you don't follow along with these ideals, if you don't buy into this hyper-materialist paradigm that they're pushing. So, well, let's read on. Like I said, I don't want to put more words in this guy's mouth than what's really there. But just the things he says in this article alone should give you enough hesitation. You will not find the answers to any of these urgent questions in the Quran or Sharia law, nor in the Bible and the Confucian Analects, but because nobody in the medieval Middle East nor anyone in ancient China knew much about computers, genetics, or nanotechnology. Radical Islam may promise an anchor of certainty in a world of technological and economic storms, but in order to navigate a storm, you need a map and a rudder rather than just an anchor. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And this is the height of hubris that he's stating here, okay? The height of hubris. 
He says here that the medieval Middle East and China, they didn't know anything about computers, genetics, or nanotechnology, or any of these new technologies, these new huge scientific ideas that we only just now as mankind produced for the first time that uh, they were they were backwards see they they didn't know any better back then they they hadn't even imagined things like this so they couldn't understand it so of course their their religion couldn't reflect on something like this do, do you see the the height of hubris here so this is somebody that's that's buying into the idea that for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years man advanced very little technologically and didn't understand basic scientific principles uh, i would argue I would argue otherwise. I would say ancient man had a better grasp of how the natural world works and how to utilize different principles and ideas better than we do now. If you look back at the different evidence of this, if you look at some of the older philosophies and sciences that have been brought forward, there's much value to be garnered there. And this guy's throwing that to the back burner and disregarding it. At least that's the, the public opinion he's giving here, or that's the impression he's giving. So let's, re let's read on. True, hundreds of millions may go on believing in Islam, Christianity, or Hinduism, but numbers alone don't count for much in history. Ten thousand years ago, most human beings were hunter-gatherers, and only a few myriad pioneers in the Middle East were farmers. Yet the future belonged to the farmers. In 1850, more than 90% of humanity lived as peasants, and in the small villages along the Ganges, the Nile, and the Yangtze, nobody knew anything about steam engines, trains, or telegraph. Yet the fate of these peasants and villages had already been sealed in Manchester and Birmingham by the handful of engineers, politicians, financiers, and visionaries who spearheaded the Industrial Revolution. Even when the Industrial Revolution spread around the world and penetrated up the Ganges, Nile, and Yangtze, most people continued to believe in the Vedas, the Bible, and the Koran more than in the steam engine. As of today, so too in the 19th century, there was no shortage of priests, mystics, and gurus who argued that they alone hold the solution to all humanity's problems. In Sudan, Muhammad Ahmed bin Abdallah declared that he was the Mahdi, or the Messiah, sent to establish the law of God on earth. His supporters defeated an Anglo-Egyptian army and beheaded its commander, General Charles Gordon, in a gesture that shocked Victorian Britain. They then established in Sudan an Islamic theocracy governed by the Sharia. I'm going to pause there, folks. He's equating the Industrial Revolution and the politicians and visionaries and financiers of all of these new technologies as being sort of the new religion, right? The, the new priestcraft, so to say, that they accomplished very much through the use of technology, more so than uh, these religious ideas had in thousands of years. At least that's the inference he's giving here. And he's pointing out some ugly things done in the name of religion to kind of further his point. Once again, he's using this art of rhetoric to really try to solidify his his viewpoint here, his opinion, to try and make it sound authoritative. And he does have that mantle of authority because he has this PhD as a historian from Oxford University. So you see how a lot of times they will use that to their advantage. And whether or not the historical facts agree with what they're stating as their opinion, they use their mantle of, I have such and such status, to claim their authority 
and kind of express their opinion as fact, whether it is or not. And that's kind of what he's doing here. But let's read on. In China, a failed scholar called Hong Jiquan had a religious vision in which God revealed that Hong was none other than the younger brother of Jesus Christ, sent to establish the great peaceful kingdom of heaven on earth. Instead of proceeding to establish a kingdom of peace, Hong led his followers into the Taiping Rebellion, the deadliest war of the 19th century. In 14 years of warfare, from 1850 to 1864, at least 20 million people lost their lives, far more than in the Napoleonic Wars or the American Civil War. Meanwhile, in India, Maharashi Dayanand Saraswati led a Hindu revival movement whose main principle was that the Vedas are never wrong. Hundreds of millions clung to such religious dogmas, even as factories, railroads, and steamships filled the world. Yet most of us don't think about the 1800s as the age of faith. When we think of 19th century visionaries, we are far more likely to recall Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and Vladimir Lenin than the Mahdi, Pius IX, or Hong Jiquan. And rightly so. I'm going to pause there, folks. So do, do you hear this? He's putting Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and Vladimir Lenin up on a pedestal and saying that they were much greater visionaries than these religious leaders who did these horrible things. What kind of a comparison is this? Let's take the worst of one group of people and compare it to what most people would consider the worst of another group and compare the apples to oranges again and see what what we come up with, which which is the better option here. So he's, he's putting Marx... Ingalls and Lenin up on a pedestal here. Listen, these are people that this guy truly admires. Get that through your head. That's who this guy is. That's what his philosophy and ideology backs up, okay? Let's let's read on. Like I said, I don't want to put words in his mouth. He'll tell you in his own words who he is, what he believes, what he's all about. People with these ideologies are the ones running the show. And they don't have a care or regard for you. This should be very concerning to people. The fact that this guy will openly uh, offer lip service and praise to Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and Vladimir Lenin and compare them to religious figures. This should be very concerning for people. Let's read on, though. Although in 1850 socialism was just a small fringe movement, it soon gathered momentum and turned the world upside down. If you count on national health services, pension funds, and free education, you need to thank Marx and Lenin and Otto von Bismarck for more, far more than the Mahdi and Hong Jiquan. Gonna pause there again, folks. Did you catch that? So now he's touting socialism, too. So you understand the ideology here. You will own nothing and you will be happy. This is the kind of ideology that these people push. This guy is in lockstep with the rest of them. He's not out there warning people. He's not concerned about some kind of a dystopian technocratic dictatorship taking place or the loss of human freedom or, you know, the loss of free will. He's not out there warning people. He's out there telling people in a hubristic fashion, this is what we, the smart ones, the, the relevant ones, are going to do to all of you useless eaters. So he, he sees himself as being one of the beneficiaries of the transhumanist 
philosophy of the transhumanist movement. He sees himself as being one of the beneficiaries of these technologies. Because that's the bottom line at the end of the day with all of this. Although they will make you all kinds of promises, and he, he opens a, actually the article with that idea that uh, religions make promises and that the same thing with this technology, it'll make all kinds of promises to people, but it won't necessarily deliver. That's because the intention for the transhumanist technologies, these are to only benefit these select few people at the top of the power structure. It's not for you and I. So that's essentially what he's saying here. But uh, let's read on. Why did Marx and Lenin succeed where the Mahdi and Hong failed? Because Marx and Lenin were relevant to their time. They studied new technologies and novel economic structures instead of perusing ancient texts. I'm going to pause there once again, folks. So now he's trying to discredit the importance of ancient texts. So he's saying that understanding new technologies and novel economic structures is far superior to perusing ancient texts or understanding something with maybe a little substance to it. Okay? It's all about the mechanics of it all in this guy's view. And that's, that's what he's pushing. Let's read on. Steam engines, railroads, telegraphs, and electricity created unheard-of problems as well as unprecedented opportunities. The needs, hopes, and fears of the new urban proletarian class were simply too different from those of biblical peasants. To answer these needs, hopes, and fears, Marx and Lenin studied how a steam engine functions, how a coal mine operates, how railroads shape the economy, and how electricity influences politics. Lenin was once asked to define communism in a single sentence. Communism, he answered. Communism is the power to Soviets, and that would be workers' councils, plus electrification of the whole country. There can be no communism without electricity, without radio. Marx and his followers understood the new technological and economic realities, and so they had relevant answers to the new problems of industrialized society, as well as original ideas about how to benefit from the unprecedented opportunities. The socialists created a brave new religion for a brave new world. Gonna pause there, folks. You hear what he did there? A brave new religion for a brave new world. Well, he was paraphrasing Huxley, wasn't he? He was, he was uh, giving a shout-out to Huxley, and that should tell you a little bit more about th who this guy is. They promised salvation through technology and economics, thus establishing the first techno-religion in history and changing the foundations of human discourse. Up until then, the great religious debates revolved around gods, souls, and the afterlife. Wait a minute, I'm going to pause there. So now he's claiming that Marx and Engels and these guys, they were the first ones that promised salvation through technology and economics, and they established what could be considered the first techno-religion in history and changed the foundations of human discourse. So he's saying there that up until that point, that religious debates revolved around gods, souls, and the afterlife. But he's contradicting himself, isn't he? When you go back to earlier in the article, when he's stating about the, the religions, the old religions... They were concerned with material things. They were only concerned with farming. They weren't concerned about metaphysics or an afterlife. Well, now he's contradicting himself and saying the opposite here. Do you see how these people will switch up their ideologies at a moment's notice to use the whole rhetoric idea to try to get people to, to follow their line of thinking here? Do you see what he's doing? He contradicted himself right in this article. Contradicted himself, and yet... 
He's claiming some type of authority because he's a historian and he has a degree from Oxford University and he's presenting his opinions here as fact-based when they are clearly not. He just changed his whole story here. He contradicted himself completely. It's it's another concept called gaslighting, okay? They, they want to hit you at all angles with these things so you don't know what to believe so that you're confused and when you're confused, you're more easily manipulatable. Uh, that's another com- concept that goes with the rhetoric idea, too. But let's let's read on. Naturally, there were differences between the economic ideas of Sunnis, Shias, Catholics, and Protestants. Yet, these were side issues. People defined and categorized themselves according to their views about God, not production methods. After Marx, however, questions of technology and economic production became far more divisive and important than questions about the soul and the afterlife. I'm going to pause there. Is that true? Do do people out there, does everybody out there think that technology and economic production is more valuable or more important than questions about the soul or the afterlife or spiritual things? Do people put more value on material things than spiritual things? Hmm? Is that a true thing? Is that a true statement? Maybe there's something to it, maybe not. I think that we've been programmed into this materialist paradigm. We've been programmed very carefully by many of these people within the power structure to follow this hyper-materialist viewpoint and to put aside spiritual concerns in favor of material things. So that that's kind of what we're seeing going on here. And, you know, he's calling this for what it is. But the truth of the matter is we've been engineered this way by these same people to fall into line with this materialist viewpoint. Let's read on. We're almost finished. In the second half of the 20th century, humankind almost obliterated itself in an argument about production methods. Even the harshest critics of Marx and Lenin adopted both men's basic attitude towards history and society and began thinking about technology and production much more carefully than about God. (laughs) Once again, is this a true statement? Or is this guy just giving his opinion? See, that's the thing. Did societies who uh, were at odds with Marx and Lenin, did they adopt their attitudes towards these things and focus more on material things than on the idea of God. Is that true? Maybe, maybe not. I could understand arguments either way with this, but that's a very broad statement to make. And it's an opinion-based statement, not a fact-based one. But he's pushing it as fact-based because, you see, he will use this mantle of historian to make it so in the eyes of anybody who may question him on it. He'll say, well, what, what is your degree in? Do you have, are you specialized in this? Are you an expert? Do, do you see, the, it's the, the whole white lab coat idea once again. Are, are you the authority in this thing? And that's, that's what it's about. Uh, truth, truth stands on its own. It, it does not need an authority to tell you that it's truth. When you look at things from that perspective, these people that go around using their authority to try to inject the truth into things, well, it's their truth, and it's not a real truth, because truth will stand on its own, and it doesn't require expert testimony. Understand that. Let's continue on. 
In the 19th century, few people were as perceptive as Marx, and only a few countries underwent rapid industrialization. These countries conquered the world. Most societies failed to understand what was happening and therefore missed the train of progress. Dianan's India and the Mahdi's Sudan were occupied and exploited by industrial Britain. Only in the past few years has India managed to close the geopolitical gap separating it from Britain. Sudan is still lagging far behind. In the early 21st century, the train of progress is once more pulling out of the station. And this will probably be the last train ever to leave the station called Homo Sapiens. Going to pause there, folks. Pay very close attention now to what this guy is saying afterwards here. Those who miss this train will never get a second chance. Whereas during the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, human beings learned to produce vehicles, weapons, textiles, and food, in the new Industrial Revolution of the 21st century, human beings are learning to produce themselves. The main products of the coming decades will be bodies, brains, and minds. The gap between those who will know how to produce bodies and brains and those who will not know will be far bigger than the gap between Charles Dickens' Britain and the Mahdi's Sudan. Gonna pause right there, folks. Did you hear what he's telling you here? The 21st century. Human beings are going to produce bodies, brains, and minds. That's going to be the major product of this new era of this new age. They're going to build themselves. They're going to build themselves. Understand what he's saying here. And he's bought into this idea wholeheartedly. Let's read on. Like I said, we're almost finished. And we'll we'll button up these ideas here at the end here. But let's read on. Like I said, I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth. I think what he's telling you in his own words is surely enough for you to make a judgment upon what kind of spirit underlies this whole thing. Socialism, which was very up-to-date a hundred years ago, failed to keep up with the new technology of the late 20th century. Leonid Brezhnev and Fidel Castro held on to ideas that Marx and Lenin formulated in the age of steam and did not understand the power of computers and biotechnology. If Marx came back to life today, he would probably urge his supporters to devote less time to reading Das Kapital and more time to studying the Internet. Radical Islam is in a far worse position than socialism. It has yet to come to terms with the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. No wonder it has little of relevance to say about genetic engineering and nanotechnology. In the past, Christianity and Islam were a creative force. For instance, in medieval Europe, the Catholic Church was responsible for numerous social and ethical reforms, as well as important economical and technological innovations. The Church founded many of the first European universities. Its monasteries experimented with novel economic methods. It led the way in techniques of data processing by creating archives and catalogs, for instance. Any king or prince who wanted an efficient administration turned to priests and monks to provide him with data processing skills. The Vatican was the closest thing 12th century Europe had to Silicon Valley. I'm going to pause there for a minute, folks. 
remember that. Here is an absolute truth this guy is saying here. He's saying here, any king or prince who wanted an efficient administration turned to priests and monks to provide him with data processing skills. It's the same thing going on today. The priest wears a different robe today, that's all. But it's the same priest class idea, and this underlies everything taught within the secret society groups. Brought forward from the ancient mystery schools, the priestcraft, so to say. These are the ones that process all the data and give you intelligence. Intelligence, think about this. The intelligence community, who is this? This is the priestcraft today. You see how all these things interrelate? The intelligence communities, you know, organizations like the CIA, the MI6, they're all interlocked with the secret society groups, and it's all the, the priestcraft that runs the show behind the scenes because they control the data. They've always controlled the data, and they still control the data. And that's the key factor here today. All right, and this guy understands that and pointed it out right here. But let's read on. Yet in the late modern era, Christianity and Islam have turned into largely reactive forces. They are busy with rearguard holding operations more than with pioneering novel technologies, innovative economic methods, or groundbreaking social ideas. They now mostly agonize over the technologies, methods, and ideas propagated by other movements. Biologists invent the contraceptive pill, and the Pope doesn't know what to do about it. Computer scientists develop the internet, and rabbis argue about whether Orthodox Jews should be allowed to surf it. Feminist thinkers call on women to take possession of their bodies, and learned muftis debate how to confront such incendiary ideas. Ask yourself, what was the most influential discovery, invention, or creation of the 20th century? This is difficult to answer because it is hard to choose from among a long list of candidates, including scientific discoveries such as antibiotics, technological inventions such as computers, and ideological creations such as feminism. Now ask yourself, what was the most influential discovery, invention, or creation of religions such as Islam and Christianity in the 20th century? This, too, is difficult because there is so little to choose from. What did priests, rabbis, and mullahs discover in the 20th century that can be mentioned in the same breath as antibiotics, computers, or feminism? I'm going to pause for a minute there, folks. You notice how he lumps feminism in with antibiotics and computers. There's a reason for this, okay? There's a, a whole techno-feminist movement that goes along with transhumanism as well. And a lot of these things are core values and ideas that undergird this whole transgender situation we see in society right now. It's the same kind of thing. It's all about breaking the human dynamic down for the sake of transhumanism or for transforming humans into the post-human in which gender ideology will be a lost issue. You can be anything you want in the new transhumanist era, in the new transhumanist age. That, that's, that's the bottom line here. There will be no absolute values of anything. And this goes for moral values as well. There, there's no absolutes. There's no absolutes in transhumanism, and they like it that way. The only absolute will be that you won't have a say in anything that goes on. That's about it. But let's read on here. Having mulled over these two questions, whence do you think the big changes of the 21st century will emerge from Islamic State or from Google? 
Yes, ISIS knows how to upload video clips to YouTube. Wow. But leaving aside the industry of torture, what new inventions have emerged from Syria or Iraq lately? And I'm going to pause there again, folks. Notice how he takes the very worst examples of religious ideals and equates them to how do they compare to technological things. Notice that he makes sure to use the term ISIS in there. And and make no mistake about it, I'm sure this guy knows full well the esoteric connotation of invoking ISIS here. And not just talking about the Islamic State group or, or the, you know, the terrorist organization, as he would want you to believe as he's putting that in there. This is an homage to the mystery schools. Make no mistake about it. Let's read on. This does not mean that religion is a spent force. Just as socialism took over the world by promising salvation through steam, so in the coming decades, new techno-religions are likely to take over the world by promising salvation through algorithms and genes. In the 21st century, we will create more powerful myths and more totalitarian religions than in any previous era. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Notice, he understands the power of myth. He said, we will create more powerful myths and more totalitarian religions than in any previous era. They're creating a new myth. And science is the god of that new myth. It's, it's going to be a totally totalitarian religion of sorts, this whole scientism thing. Let's read on and see what else he says. We're, we're just about to the end here. With the help of biotechnology and computer algorithms, these religions will not only control our minute-by-minute existence, but will be able to shape our bodies, brains, and minds, and to create entire virtual worlds complete with hells and heavens. If you want to meet the prophets who will remake the 21st century, don't bother going to the Arabian Desert or the Jordan Valley. Go to Silicon Valley. And that's the end of the article, folks. So, essentially, the transhumanists, they are the future priestcraft. These are the people that are steering agendas. They will control your thoughts, your minds. They will build your brains and your bodies and your minds. And they'll be able to put you in entire virtual worlds, complete with hells and heavens, as he says here. And notice he uses hells first before heavens. I kind of have a little bit of a recollection of maybe writing about this idea back in my very first book that I published in 2017 about the idea of virtual reality and and building these new virtual worlds for uploading somebody's consciousness into and how this could be possibly building their own personal hell for these people because the Bible speaks of in those days men shall seek death and it shall escape them. So this could be building an artificial system in which mankind builds his own hell It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've built your own hell and put yourself there. And notice that this guy is, is talking in similar terms here with a lot of these ideas. But does he realize that's what he's doing? And, and see, that that's the whole thing. Because these people who are running these operations, who are running these transhumanist technologies, who are guiding and steering these things, they put themselves on a different plane than the rest of us. They're going to be the ones that will have the big benefits of these technologies. And you and I will just get the little benefits that they they will allow us to have, if any. And we'll be part of the whole culling process, so to say. And, And that's largely what's been going on here now. They're culling the population, folks. 
I don't know how much plainer I could say this. It's We've gone into an operational eugenics going on right now. It's gone from speculative eugenics or uh, uh, theoretical eugenics to operational eugenics now with the rollout of these COVID-19 vaccines. I can tell it like it is here. COVID-19 vaccines are a eugenics weapon designed to cull the population. And also, it's a forerunner for things to come for biometric tagging and biometric identification, a digital ID, all these ideas tying you into an artificial intelligence control grid. If you want free speech and you want to be able to say the truth and impart the truth to some people, well, it's got to be people that value the truth. And those of you who are listening are people that value the truth and are looking out there for truth and want to maybe know some things. And I don't have all the answers, and I, I will never claim to do so, to have all the answers to things. But I could just share with you the things I've discovered through my own studies, and I would encourage you to go and do the own, your own research in these things and look for yourself. You'll be shocked at what you find, I'll tell you that much. You'll be shocked. Everything's out there in the public domain now. There's nothing that's hidden. They're very plain about what they want to do. I mean, just this article alone, it's, it's out there. You could read through the whole thing verbatim like I just did. I read the whole thing to you folks here. And I added my own thoughts to it, of course, because I like to read between the lines with a lot of this stuff because I've become skilled at doing that through my many years of research with these things. So I could kind of get a feel as to what their thought processes are in these writings. So that being the case, I hope my insights are valuable. And if not, well, I would encourage you, go do your own reading. Form, formulate your own insights into things, because that, that's the bottom line here. Uh, we're, we're talking about the future of humanity. And we're at a crossroads in society right now where we could go one of two ways. We could either take the road that leads us further to being able to achieve our full potential as human beings and become what God intended us to be as human beings, or we could take the shortcut in the dark path, the transhumanist path, which is the path that these people in positions of power in this world want us to take. And that leads ultimately to the death cult ideas, because essentially that, that's what runs this place, folks. It's a giant death cult. It's all death-based ideas that they push and promote all the time. Look at, look at Hollywood. Look at the entertainment. It's all death-based. It's a death-based system, all of it. Uh, so if you keep your finger on the pulse of society, it's all based on death-based ideas. It's the reign of dead matter, as Michael Hoffman calls it. The reign of dead matter. That's what transhumanism's ultimate goal is. It's lifelessness. It's, it's soullessness. Okay? It's, it's an artificial facade. Artificial intelligence. See, it's artificial. There's nothing real about it. There's nothing practical about it. There's nothing natural about it. It's an inversion of natural principles. It's trying to usurp the creator and become God. That's what the transhumanist goal is. They want to usurp the creator and become God themselves of this physical plane in which we live. They think they could achieve this through their technologies and through their quote-unquote science. This is the new myth. It's the new religion. It's, it's the order of the day, okay? It's, it's a more sensible modern myth for our modern sensibilities. See, science, do you trust the science? Do you believe the science? Believe in the science. The science is the answer. 
it's the same thing. It's, it's all the same type of mythological archetype being leveraged here. And I could go on ad nauseum about that. Many of these occult principles underlie everything, even up in the modern era. And a lot of people have missed the boat on this, and that's why I'm out doing the things I'm doing. Because I want people to understand the roots to this go back way far into, into history, into the past. Back to the ancient mystery schools. That's where these philosophies have come from. That's what they're building on. That's what they're trying to steer this transhumanist agenda with are these old, old, old philosophies and natural sciences that were well understood by ancient man that have been lost today. And we've been taught to think of these things as backwards thinking. When you hear the term alchemy, well, you've been taught in school, alchemy was the primitive precursor of chemistry, and it was just backwards, silly ideas, and nothing could be further from the truth. These are the natural sciences that run this place. Mankind in antiquity had a much firmer understanding of how many of these things operate, the principles of operation of this place, than what we have today. We've been taught to think in terms of just sheerly physical properties, that there's nothing spiritual underlying all of this. It's all material. It's all hyper-material. And the transhumanist movement is the ultimate fulfillment of this hyper-materialism, right down to building virtual worlds. These are incorporeal things that do not exist on any level that they plan on building and being the gods of. It's completely and wholly artificial and against how the natural order works. Yet, that's what they're pushing and promoting by twisting some of these old alchemical sciences in the ways that they have to steer these things into being. If you were curious as to who this Harari guy was, I'm sure you've probably seen him around the internet lately and making the rounds on social media and stuff like that, and may have had a little bit of an idea as to who he is, an advisor of Klaus Schwab, proponent of the World Economic Forum, an Israeli historian who, who wrote books about transhumanism and things like that. And you've seen him on the circuit lately around the social media where you'll see videos of him talking about the idea that man is now a hackable animal. There's no such thing as free will anymore. And many people have construed him talking about these things as being a warning to the people and perhaps, you know, he's kind of on our side and wants us to be able to get past that stuff. Well, that's not the character that I read about in that article that he wrote, is it? He idolizes people like Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Vladimir Lenin, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, socialism. He's a big proponent of socialism. He thinks socialism took over the world. Is he wrong? Well, not completely. I mean, even our capitalist system, the way that crony capitalism works, it's, it's kind of a socialist system, isn't it? And it's going towards that direction more and more every day. And it always invariably leads to fascism. And if he's a true student of history, or a true historian as he claims to be, he would understand that. When you look back at the history of socialism in this world, you will always find that it invariably ends badly. In every single case, historically. You, you would think he knows this, but obviously he has another agenda in mind, and it has to do with this transhumanist philosophy. And he's all on board with Klaus Schwab and the gang of the World Economic Forum, because that's what they're looking for. They're promoting and pushing this. The Fourth Industrial Revolution. This will be the foundation of transhumanism through the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Now you have a better idea as to who this guy is, and make no mistake about it, he's not your friend, he's not on your side, he's not out there trying to warn people anything, he's just out there bragging. 
that's what this is at this point. It's bragging. They're they're so hubristic about it. They think they've got everything so locked in now with everything that they're out there just throwing it in your face because they they know people's cognitive dissonance will kick in and they wouldn't believe it anyway. So they could go out there and they could openly tell you what they're doing, what their ideas are, and you'll think, well, this guy's trying to warn us against this stuff. <laughs> you see? You see how this works or or they, you know, they'll they'll have you think this is all silly, nonsensical things. It's impossible. It'll never happen. Well, they're out there throwing it in your face and laughing at you the whole way. And this guy's one of them. So, there you go. Think you get a good idea as to who this clown really is. So, that being the case, take this information and do with it what you will. Go do your own research into these things. Look into these people and what they're all about. And the things they have planned for you. And you'll be better prepared for the future ahead. So, thanks for tuning in. Have a good night. Faithful, 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 faithful.